Merry Christmas Eve, Eve City Light. All right, all right. I'm excited about Christmas. I don't know about you guys. Merry Christmas Eve. I hope you've got Merry Christmas Eve, Eve. I only said it once, but I got to say it twice. Uh, I hope you guys have all your packages and presents wrapped and ready to go, because if you don't, there's less than 48 hours until the big day, right? The big day in this season, of course, is Christmas Day, uh, the day where we see that the God who created us and loves us became like us to live among us. That's big news deserving of a big day, right? So Christmas, that's what we celebrate, the big news that God came to live among us. Uh, Well, there are other big days in life, right? Not just Christmas Day. They might not be as big as Christmas Day, but they're big days nonetheless. Like, for instance, before I helped start this church, I had a job at an IT company in Omaha, and part of my job there was to help plan and organize events for IT professionals. And most people who know me say, how did you get a job like that? You don't plan anything. And that's true. I don't know how. That's just God's uh, way. Uh, but I helped do that, and I loved that job. And one of the parts of that job that I loved the most was getting to send out the invitations to a new event. And I loved that because in those invitations, we would announce who the keynote speaker was. And I loved seeing the reaction to uh, those speakers. One time, uh, we sent out an invitation and announced Vint Cerf was going to be our keynote speaker. That's this guy. Uh, I think he looks sort of like the old man next door in Home Alone. This guy, maybe a little bit. Uh, Well, we didn't get him, old man Marley. We got Vint. That's him. Um, And some people saw that invitation and thought, you got Vint Surf? That's amazing. How did you get him to come here? They were excited because they knew who he was, which is probably different than most of you, right? Anybody not know Vint Surf? I didn't. Um, They knew who he was. Vint Surf is widely regarded as the father of the internet. He dreamed it, designed it, put it together. The internet that we know and love and use today, is uh, it exists because this guy put it together. And so some people were just super excited to meet Vint Cerf, but others didn't share that enthusiasm. Some people saw that invitation and thought, Vint Cerf, is that a name? What is Vint Cerf? Who is he? They didn't know who he was or how what he had done impacted their lives. And so they heard the announcement, but they just ignored the invitation. They didn't care. And then there were yet other people who heard Vint Cerf was coming to town, and they got kind of irritated by it. They said things like, Vint Cerf isn't the father of the internet. Other guys like Bob Kahn and Al Gore played a role, right? (laughs) Uh, Other people said, no, the internet is chock full of problems. If he would have made it more secure, if he would have planned it better, we wouldn't be dealing with what we're dealing with today. Other people said he sold out to Google. Why would you bring him in right now? He is the chief internet evangelist for Google. Quite a title, right? Um, Anyway, you get the idea. Some people were irritated. Why would you bring this guy in? When we announced the father of the internet is coming to town. Some people were excited, some people ignored it, and some people were irritated. And so I just, it turned out to be a really cool conference. He was a great speaker, and some people missed out because of the way they responded to the announcement, to the invitation. And so sometimes, um, I just think, when there's announce, an announcement, we will either get in or miss out based on how we respond. And here in Matthew 2, I think we see a better announcement and a better invitation. 
In Matthew 2, the announcement is not the father of the internet is coming to town. The announcement is God's promised king is coming to town, has come to town. And I just want to start this morning by saying when God's promised king comes to town, it is an event like no other event in the history of the universe. God's announcement was done with great displays of power and glory. Like in the book of Luke, we see God announced the birth of his son with a huge group of angels that appeared in the night sky, lighting it up and audibly speaking with their voices, waking up shepherds who were sleeping in their fields. I don't know about you, when the night sky lights up and angels start talking to you, that's a big deal. That's like a big announcement. And then we see in the book of Matthew that God again announced the birth of his promised king in the sky. But this time, it was to a totally different group of people. It wasn't shepherds in their fields. It was what the Bible calls magi. Now, we don't call each other magi very often today, so I had to look up what that actually means. And whenever I have to look up something in the Bible, um, I like to use a resource that's free online called blueletterbible.org. So I looked up magi there, and it says the word magi is the name given by the Babylonians, Medes, Persians, and others to the wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, augurs, whatever that is, soothsayers, sorcerers, etc. What I gleaned from that, these guys are part scientist, part wizard. Okay, it's like NASA engineer meets Harry Potter. That's the magi, okay? I'm just going to call them wise men. These wise men, it was their duty, their job to know things and discern things. And so they would interpret dreams. They would watch the stars and track the seasons and determine events by all of that. They were sought out for their knowledge so that they could give answers. Today, if we have questions, we ask Google or Alexa or Siri. But in those days, none of that existed. So you would ask the Magi or the wise men. That's what they did. So here's how the Bible introduces the Magi to us. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. I don't know about you guys, how you respond when you read verses like that, but I read that kind of thing, and I feel like in our kind of scientifically bent, enlightened world, I read something like that and think, man, I got some questions. You're telling me some wizards saw a star in the sky and that gave them a message that a king had been born? How does that work out? Was it really a star? I thought astrology was just silly superstition. If it was a star, how could a star, like light years away, lead people to a particular country, much less a particular house? I just got questions. I read passages like that. I got more questions than answers. Can you relate? So I did some research these last few weeks trying to see what people said about this star, answer some of those questions. And after several hours of research on this, I'll just tell you, 
I still have no clue how it all worked, okay? I don't know what the answer is. People have lots of thoughts. Some people say it was legit, a real star. Others say that some planets came together in alignment and uh, looked like a star. Others said maybe a comet or a shooting star. Some said it could have just been a supernatural light that God made appear on this particular occasion for this particular purpose. I read all of it. Honestly, I still don't know, okay? I don't have the answer. What I do know is the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how it all worked. The Bible just tells us that it all worked. Somehow, God caused a star to rise in the sky. Some wizard scientists in a foreign country saw it, and they got the message. God's promised king had been born. And so they packed up their stuff, rode on their camels or chariots or however they did it across countries. They arrived in Jerusalem, and they started asking Where is the king who's been born? We saw his star. And when they got there, nobody had a good answer, but word started getting out about what these wise men were saying and uh, the search that they were on. And the announcement that started in the stars started going viral on the ground. And we see at that point that not everybody shared the wise men's enthusiasm. We're going to see in Matthew that as this announcement spreads, three groups of people hear it, and they have three different responses. All right, this is where we're going this morning. Uh, Herod was troubled. The religious leaders were tepid. They were lukewarm. They were just careless. And the wise men were thrilled. Maybe this morning, with 48 hours, less than 48 hours to go until the big day, you just ask yourself, How am I responding to God's announcement that the promised king has come? How's that sitting on your heart? Do you relate with one of these groups more than the other? Um, Well, let's jump in. The first response we see is Herod's, okay? When uh, in these days, Herod would have been considered the king of the Jews, and he was a ruthless and paranoid ruler, He just always thought that there were threats to his throne, and as he perceived all these challengers around him, he developed a little habit of taking out any threat. And so he was a murderous king. He even put to death his favorite wife and three of his sons. His uh, buddy and boss, Caesar Augustus, once said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. There are not very many households where the pigs have it better than the kids, right? Herod was a ruthless, paranoid ruler. And so with that in mind, we read, when Herod the king heard this, that the wise men had come looking for God's promised king, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod found out that God's promised king was born, he was troubled He was paranoid. He was anxious or distressed. If there was really another king that had just been born, the one that God had long promised would come, that king might take Herod's throne. That king might be a threat to him. And if I'm honest, as I put myself in Herod's shoes, I can kind of relate. Because if I have to give up something that I love, that's troubling. If I have to give up something that's kind of core to my identity, that's troubling. Let me give you an example. Um, I've, seems like I've had to spend a lot of time lately with people who are healthy eaters, 
And that's got me thinking about how I eat. <laughs> and so last week, Chuck invited me to go to a late breakfast with a city group leader. And we went to this cafe and we all ordered our meals. And when the uh, server brought out our food, what I saw was kind of troubling to me, all right? Chuck ordered just a cup of coffee because he was having a late breakfast and then an early lunch and he didn't want to eat two meals back to back. And then the city group leader, his name's Chase, uh, he ordered a veggie omelet with no toast. And I thought, man, both those guys made good decisions. And then the server slid my plate over, and it was troubling, okay? It was full. It had a huge helping of corned beef hash, a bunch of slices of thick mapley bacon. It had hash browns and eggs and buttery sourdough toast with a whole thing of jelly that was ready to be slathered on top. I don't know about you guys, I was like mouth-watering when I saw it. And then I thought to myself, Eric, you got a lot to give up if this is going to be a healthy meal someday. <laughs> like, you got a lot to give up if you're going to join the healthy eating crowd, right? Have you ever had an experience like that? You just, I got to give something up to get where I want to be. And I think sometimes we can have experiences like that in our souls. You follow me? I feel like sometimes we can read that verse or hear that sermon or have that conversation that just taps somewhere into our heart, our soul, and says, if Jesus really is God's promised king, that means I might have to give something up. And that can be troubling, right? It can be difficult. Like maybe uh, for Herod, it was his throne. It was his identity. It was his power. Maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe following Jesus means that you'd have to give up your pride and actually get some help for that addiction or that habit or that secret that's just been following you. Or maybe you'd have to give up a relationship that you know isn't good for you or honoring to the God that you're trying to serve. Or maybe you'd have to give up something in your schedule uh, so that you can spend more time with God's people. Or maybe you'd have to give up something in your schedule so you spend less time with God's people and more time with the people God's sending us out to take his good news to. I don't know, but maybe as you just wrestle with what God is saying, sometimes you get tapped in the heart and it feels like you might have to give something up more than a couple slices of bacon, and that's troubling to you. Have you ever been there? Well, if that's you, let me encourage you today. When Jesus grew up, there were some guys that left everything to follow him. And they asked Jesus one time, hey, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What is in store for us? Remind us why we've done this. What is the end result of what we're pursuing right now? And Jesus gave them an answer. He said, it's Matthew chapter 19, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. When they ask Jesus, what's in store for us when we've given up everything to follow you? He says there's a lot in store. He says there's a hundredfold return and eternal life. That's a pretty good deal, right? Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to go prosperity gospel. I don't think Jesus came just so that we can have financial success and health forever. But I do think that what the Bible says is true and we can trust Jesus' words to his followers. And what he said to them has something to say to us. 
And so when these guys ask Jesus, what do we get for following you? He says, you get eternal life and everything you've given up, you get a hundredfold return. We can take Jesus at his word. He's ready to give us eternal life when we give up whatever it is that holds us back from following him. And for his disciples that asked this question, they'd given up homes and lands to take the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. They'd given up a lot. And Jesus said, hey, you may have given up homes and lands today, but in eternity, you will get a forever home with me that can never be taken away. And you'll never have to give up. Those disciples had given up relationships with family and friends who abandoned them or rejected them because of their decision to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, you may have given up family and friends here today for this season, but in eternity, you will spend forever with the family of God, with a good father who created you and loves you. You may have to give something up today, but you will get eternal life with me forever. Listen, Selah, I want to say, man, to follow Jesus, sometimes we have to give up things. And those things are real, and they can be really hard to give up. But I also want to encourage you, the Bible says that what we get in Jesus is also real, and it is really good. And so today, if you are troubled by the good news gospel of Jesus, that to follow him, it means you got to bow your knee before the newborn king, God's promised king, who has come to this earth. I want you to remember that what you have to give up is worth giving up to get what you will get. Jesus promised eternal life. Herod was so caught up, so concerned, so troubled by what he would have to give up, he missed that he would get Jesus. See, I don't want that to be our story. This Christmas, would we get Jesus? Not giving up on him. Um, all right, so number one, the first response we see to the good news that God's promised king had come is Herod's. He was troubled. The second response we see comes from the religious leaders of the day. Now, since Herod was troubled, he was that paranoid kind of king. He heard God's promised king had come, and so he set out to find this new rival, this new threat to his throne. And so he gathered together the chief priests and the scribes. These guys were the religious leaders of the day. It was their job to know God's laws and his promises, and then to lead people by them. And so if anybody should know uh, anything about God's promised king, it should be these guys. So Herod gathers them together, tells them what the wise men have said and the kind of journey that they're on, and then he asks, where will this new baby king be born? The Bible says they gave him an answer. Here it is, Matthew chapter 2. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That is all Matthew tells us about these religious leaders. All we know is that they had an answer for Herod's question, where will the baby be born? It means they knew their scriptures, they knew God's promises, they knew where they should be looking to see God when he moved. But when the time came that wise men had seen a star that indicated that God's promised king was here, these religious leaders 
just didn't care. They hadn't noticed the star that the wise men saw. They didn't ask if they could tag along to see the baby too. They didn't even go as far as Herod did and ask, could you bring us back a status report or an update on how it went? Did the star really mean that there was a baby king born? Did you find him? Can you bring us a status report? They did none of that. They just tell Herod, hey, look in Bethlehem, and then they check out. It's a careless, indifferent, lukewarm, tepid response. And I just find it super difficult to understand how they could have spent their whole lives looking and learning and longing for this newborn king, and then when he got there, they just didn't care. They missed it. And so I've, I, my best shot at an example today is this. I uh, take my son to karate class once a week, and I met another dad there and found out he's been married 12 years like me. He's got four kids like me, and so I just asked him for his story. Um, how'd you meet? How'd you get started? What's your family story? He said that he met his wife when they became pen pals when he was serving on a military ship overseas. Now, that's all he told me, but I'm kind of a sappy romantic kind of guy, so I like to imagine what fills in the gaps there. And so I, I just imagine Matthew and his wife have these stacks of letters that they wrote one to the other. And I imagine in those letters, there are stories of what it was like to serve on a warship out to sea for hundreds of days at a time under constant threat of the enemy far away from home. Now imagine there are letters that describe her concern for his safety and well-being and her longing for his quick return home. I imagine in those letters there are sparks and inklings of a new love developing between people who have never seen or met each other in real life. I imagine you get a taste of plans that were being made. What would it look like for us to live life together when we are united at long last? It sounds like the perfect premise for a Hallmark Christmas movie, right? <laughs> Lots of love letters. Well, now I want you to imagine that Matthew's story is your story. All those letters were written to you. All those plans were made with you. All that love is expressed toward you. All that hoping and longing and waiting and building up and yearning was happening in you. That's been your life for years and after all of that, the time comes and you find out your pen pal has arrived. You get to see a face and hear a voice and hug a body. They're here at long last. And when that news arrives, instead of going to meet the one you love, you decide to just stay home. No big deal. I'm going to miss out. No wedding. No 12th anniversary. No four kids. Just don't care. As impossible as that is to imagine, how could you be that involved for that long? How could you invest that much of yourself into that kind of a love and then just not care? That's exactly what the religious leaders did. See, they had more than just a star in the sky to tell them that God's promised king was here. They had the entire Old Testament that told them God's plans 
Its pages are like love letters that describe what it's like for God to be far away from the people that he loves. His great care for everyone that he created. His plans for their future together. His determination to be with them once again. The religious leaders had read and studied and taught and memorized and preserved all of it. And then when the time came, that that good, loving creator, God, would no longer just speak to them through letters, but he would speak to them face to face, they just didn't care. And today, I would ask you, this Christmas, can you relate to them? Has God's love letters to you become stale? You sit here and feel like, man, I've heard the same stories every December since I was a kid. And they just don't feel like that good of news anymore. Or maybe you just don't care about the story at all. You think, man, it's hard to believe that a star rose in the sky, some wizards in another country saw it, and followed it to worship a baby king. That all seems really hard to believe, so you just don't believe it. Maybe You just don't care. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. If what God says in his word is true, it's worth caring about. If what God says is true, it's worth caring about. Let me show it to you from his word. The religious leaders that didn't care quoted a scripture that said the promised king would shepherd his people. You know what that means? It means that God saw the situation they were in. He knew what they were longing for and what they needed. They lived under a ruthless, paranoid tyrant. And they longed for a caring shepherd king. A king who would love them and tend to them and work for their flourishing. Herod literally killed his own people. And God's promised king would give his people life. They needed that and longed for it. God saw it and spoke right into it. God's word isn't an imaginary fairy tale full of promises that don't mean anything in real life. God's word is his word to his people, the people that he sees, the people that he cares about, the people that he listens to when they pray, the people that he feels for when he sees their needs, the people that Jesus created for life and love, the people that he will keep his promises to. God doesn't make an imaginary fairy tale with promises that don't matter. He sees real people and speaks into their real lives. And so these shepherds wanted and needed a caring king, but they'd grown cold to God's promises, and because of that, they missed him when he came. City Light, it's my prayer that that would never be our story. We would never grow cold and careless toward the promises that God has made to you and to me. Let God's word inspire you. Let it encourage you. Let it give you hope this Christmas and every day beyond this Christmas. His promises are there to do that very thing. Today, can I encourage you, don't miss out on Jesus. And Jesus came for you. His invitation is for you, and he wants to be part of your real life today. See, like, the religious leaders knew the scriptures but missed the Savior because they didn't care. They were tepid. 
so we see three responses. The first was Herod's. He was threatened. The second was the religious leaders. They were tepid. They just didn't care. Matthew shows us one more group and one more response. After the religious leaders said, hey, go check out Bethlehem. That's the place to look. The wise men packed up their things. They made a six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The star appeared again, and it led them right to the house where Jesus was. And here's what the Bible says. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And then, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. See, like the wise men were thrilled to meet the king. You see how Matthew says it? He says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is joy to the fourth degree. It's not just they rejoiced. It's not just they rejoiced with joy. It's they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You see the point Matthew's trying to make? They celebrate. They saw the star. It filled them with joy. They followed it to the house. When they stepped in the house, they saw the king that the star had promised would be in that house. And when they saw him in their joy, they fell down and worshiped the king who had been sent for their good. And they opened up their treasures and gave him gifts, valuable gifts of great worth, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They rejoiced greatly with great, exceedingly with great joy. See, like, is this not what we see in kids at Christmas time? Right? You see stockings hung on the wall or the fireplace and they're empty, but the kids know those empty stockings hold a promise. Because when I wake up tomorrow, good gifts are going to be in there. And so they can hardly sleep at night because they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. They know we're going to have to load up in the van to go to grandma and grandpa's house. And it may be a long drive, but when we get there, there will be cookies and candy and presents. And so they have a hard time sitting buckled into those seats because they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Those kids get it. They get what the wise men got. The wise men rejoiced when they saw the star and when they saw the king. And today, City Light, I want to say, we have reason to rejoice too. The same king, the same promise that God gave to them, he gave to us. God has given us a good gift. It's his promised shepherd king. It's his son, Emmanuel, God with us. It is our savior, Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins. Jesus is a gift for you. And I want to tell you, Jesus is a gift for you. When God made that announcement in the sky, he did it to lowly shepherds in a field. God made the great wise men in a foreign country. That just shows us when God made the announcement that his king had come, he made it to the rich and to the poor. He made it to the far and to the near. He made it to the highly educated and the not so highly educated. City Light, I don't know who you are, but I know God's promise is for you. His invitation to come see the king is for you. We have reason to rejoice. God's offer of eternal life is for people like you and for me. Friends, Matthew shows us three responses 
to that invitation. Herod was so threatened by what he thought Jesus might take from him that he missed that Jesus was God's gift to him. The religious leaders, they knew the scriptures, but they missed the Savior because they became cold and careless toward God's promises. Friends, it's my prayer this morning that our response to the good news that God's promised king is here would be more like the wise men than anybody else. That we would see God's promises in his scriptures and that we would we would respond to those by rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Would you accept God's invitation to follow his promised king? If you do, you can join with the wise men and rejoice because Jesus promises eternal life to all who follow him. That's good news this Christmas. Amen? Amen. Would you guys pray with me? Oh, great and awesome God, I thank you that you are a keeper of your promises. And you go to great lengths to make them known to all people. You wrote them in your scripture hundreds of years before they ever came true. So the people who read that scripture could know presence at Christmas time. Yearn and long for your good gift just like kids do for presence at Christmas time. And God, you, you rose a star up so that a suit of people near wizards, scientists would see it and they would know your promise too to people near and far, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, burning places from the wrong places. Jesus, your invitation is for all of us. And so this morning, as Christmas is upon us, oh God, I ask, would you not let us be a people who are threatened by it and keep you at arm's length? What would our celebration be about you and with you and for you, not far from you? God, would you, would you give us a joy in your word, in your promises? Would you rekindle a fire in our hearts for the one who first loved us? And for people who've never known you, maybe it's the first kindling. For people who've had questions and wondered and wandered and looked is there a good king that I can follow? It feels like my life is just uh, fear of the tyrants that rule over me. I need a good shepherd king. Oh God, would they find that in you this Christmas? And God, for all of us who see the newborn king, who've known the story for years, who come here to celebrate, God, would you fill us with that rejoicing exceedingly with great joy, not because this is a season of brotherly love, or a season of generosity, or a season with twinkly lights, but because it's a season where we remember that the God who created us sent his son to be Emmanuel, God with us, that he might live and die so that we can have eternal life, your goodness being with you now and forever. That is good news. It's worthy of a big day. God, would you make uh, this Christmas celebration this year a big day for us? We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.